0: Minuteman III consists of a three-stage solid propellant booster, which is almost 60 feet tall and five and one-half feet in diameter at its widest point. The fully outfitted missile weighs almost 80,000 pounds and can eventually reach a speed of about 13,000 miles per hour, or approximately 3.6 miles per second.
1: Members of my tribe live with nuclear missiles on the Fort Berthold Reservation. The weapons sit in underground concrete silos that are surrounded by antennas in small, fenced-off areas. The missiles are armed and ready to launch in 60 seconds. This is one reason they are called the Minutemen missiles.
2: We are fully aware that should these weapons ever be used, the final page of history is in our hands. You can't live your life within inches of a nuclear weapon and not feel the weight of the world. Our mission is to carry that weight. Theodore Roosevelt said, Speak softly and carry a big stick. Sticks don't get much bigger than this.
1: You're listening to Scientific American's podcast series, The Missiles on our Res." I'm Ella Weber, a member of the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara Nation, or MHA Nation, a Princeton student, and a journalist. This is Episode 4, Catastrophic Risks. After learning that the Air Force had not explained to my tribe what the new nuclear missiles were for, which the Air Force intended to deploy for another 60 years on our reservation, I decided to dig deeper. I wanted to know what role the missiles and their silos play today in U.S. nuclear strategy and what the risks were for the tribe in hosting them, something that the tribe never agreed to in the first place.
0: When looking at each leg of it with the ICBM force, it's clear that they are so uh, buried out in the, uh, the central U.S., that any enemy that wants to take us on is going to have to commit two, three, four weapons to make certain they take each one out. In other words, the ICBM force provides a cost-imposing strategy on an adversary.
1: That was General Jim Mattis, former Secretary of Defense in the Trump administration. During his confirmation hearing in front of the U.S. Senate Armed Services Committee in 2017, he was explaining the role of silo-based intercontinental ballistic missiles, referred to as ICBMs in military jargon. I wasn't really clear on what Secretary Jim Mattis meant by the ICBM force providing a cost-imposing strategy, so I talked to Leonor Tomaro to get some clarity. She used to serve as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear and Missile Defense Policy in the Biden administration in 2021.
2: In terms of the ICBMs, it's sort of strength in numbers because you've got so many and they're so spread out um, that an adversary would have to commit a lot of nuclear weapons if they were to pursue a large-scale attack on the United States. Leonor explained to me
1: that should the U.S. face a potential nuclear attack, the president would have two choices with regards to the ICBMs. Launch them preventatively before the missiles possibly got destroyed, decide to absorb the attack and retaliate later. So what do you mean by absorbing an attack? I think, you know, it's, you know they're considered a, a sponge. So it's kind of like making these ICBMs like a target yes. rather than like these other major cities or other places. Right. In case you don't know, the role of the ICBM is to force an adversary to use many nuclear weapons if they decided to attack the U.S. The silos are basically meant to divert and absorb incoming nuclear missiles from important and critical areas in the country, like cities. But what would that mean for the Fort Berthold Reservation?
0: I'm uh, Frank von Hippel. I've worked at Princeton since 1974, and I've been working on nuclear arms control and non-proliferation, and also, among other things, the consequences of nuclear war.
1: Frank served as assistant director of national security at the Office of Science and Technology Policy at the White House. This was during the Clinton administration. He was also one of the first scientists to be involved with research on the consequences of nuclear strikes on U.S. nuclear weapons, including the Minuteman silos, which he described in detail in Scientific American in 1976. There's a particular hearing from around that time that he references.
0: Basically, the, uh, the Secretary of Defense had come in and testified to Congress, that when one of the senators asked how many people would such a, uh, an attack kill, he estimated 15 to 25,000, and he said, "Well, that would be terrible, but it would be not what you would expect from a nuclear, a major nuclear attack." That seemed low uh, to to actually the senator from New Jersey, uh, and he he asked for a peer review of the Defense Department calculations and, and I was then asked to be a non-paid consultant to look into that. And in fact, I, I went over to the Pentagon to talk to the people uh, who had done the calculations.
1: Frank found something unexpectedly horrifying.
0: The Defense Department had assumed that explosions of the warheads over the ICBM silos would be so high that they would not cause fallout. But they pointed out they would also not damage the silos.
1: Basically, the Department of Defense hadn't calculated properly. The DoD had made incorrect assumptions about the altitude of nuclear explosions aimed at destroying the silos. Initially, it had thought that the nuclear explosions would need to be at an altitude. But they actually needed to be at ground level.
0: The DoD was forced to go back and do new calculations reflecting these points, and they came out about a thousand times higher, 20 million when there were 20 million people killed. Wow. And I wrote an article in Scientific American about that, and then we decided to write, to do our own calculations. We uh, published another article in Scientific American in the, in the mid-'80s. So the numbers went up a little bit, but we're in the same area.
1: Then, someone from Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, one of the U.S.'s nuclear weapons laboratories, called Frank.
0: And he said... We wish we had your resources. We were less than a million dollars a year. And I wondered why he said that. And, And I realized then that they had not been given permission to do these kinds of calculations until after they were asked to check our calculations.
1: I wondered if this time the government had actually done calculations as part of its modernization plans to deploy the new Sentinel missiles. I asked Frank, what would be the consequences for my tribe... Should the 15 silos be attacked with nuclear weapons?
0: Well, you know, they—I don't know who coined this term about the s- silos being a nuclear sponge—but the local, I think, there would be annihilation of the local population around the silos. It wouldn't just be the fallout. Uh, you know, it would also be the the blast effects and, and so on. So. Um, um, that would be the worst affected.
1: My grandma only lives two and a half miles away from an ICBM silo. What would happen to her and her place?
0: I, I think, you know, she would be within the blast radius. Um, and so, and the, and the fire radius, I don't know what, how flammable, you know, I mean, her house would be presumably burned after being not flat, and then there would be uh, the fallout of uh, uh, these these explosions would have to be low enough to, to hit the cellars with with uh, uh, sufficient overpressure to destroy the missiles inside. It would have to be low enough for for sort of, uh, dirt to be and and debris to be sucked up into the cloud, and then that would bring up. Bring down some of the radioactivity in a very intense patch uh, around the around the cell. So, there did multiple ways in which she might die. I'm
2: sorry. I mean, did make the decision to have them there. So. Yeah, I know.
1: Being treated as expendable is a new to indigenous communities. As far as I could tell, members of the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara nation don't see themselves as living in a sacrifice zone. This designation treats certain areas and people as acceptable losses. They bear the brunt of the risks and consequences associated with nuclear weapons and the decisions made by others. Maybe if members of the tribe had better understanding of what the risks were, they could challenge the deployment of these new silos on our land. Back to talk with Edmund Baker, environmental director of MHA Nation. We also talked to him in the last episode, where he told me he felt that members of the tribe should be aware of the risks. This time, I visited him with Sebastian Philippe of Princeton University. In case you don't remember, Sebastian is a nuclear scientist and principal investigator of the same missiles research project we talked about in episode one. He had just finished computing the consequences of a concerted nuclear attack on the ICBM silos. In some sense. He had updated the work that Frank and others had done back in the 1970s and 80s.
0: Now I'm gonna put the whole image of the entire areas that can be impacted by the fallout and I can walk you through the, the color cutting. Um, but that's basically the worst case possible for every single person on the map. Okay. Holy crap. Even Disneyland's not immune. Disney World out, New York. That's no safe place. So that's okay. So yeah. that batch there, in North Dakota, the white sort of a color. Yeah. That's 100% fatality. Mm-hmm. 10 times ten. Ozone. Yeah, ten times what you would need to, you know, and and that's just from the radioactivity. Okay, so. <clears throat> That's not in the EIS, I figure. Or is it? No. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Remember when I was saying it's uh, sort of bolstered downplayed here and there, but they have to mention certain things. Holy cow. Yeah. That's...
1: By the way, Emmons talking about an environmental impact statement, or EIS, a two-volume report released by the U.S. Air Force that is meant to analyze, quote, the potential effects on the human and natural environments from the deployment of the Sentinel Intercontinental Ballistic Missile System, End quote. This was the report that the Air Force had presented to my reservation in a different place than it had initially advertised. And in the entire 3,000 pages of the report in its appendices, which cost $33 million to write by the way, Sebastian had found that the consequences of a nuclear war that could impact my tribe were kind of glossed over. The EIS mentioned the casualties and grave implications of such war, but they didn't really go beyond that. Here's Frank again, speaking about the military's attitudes towards the consequences of war in general.
0: They talk about people like your grandmother as being collateral damage. I mean, they they, they try to desensitize themselves to what the consequences are, what they're talking about, uh, by... And... And in fact, I remember uh, uh, when I first went over to the Pentagon to talk to people, I learned the first time I heard this word called collateral damage. That is, we, you know, we didn't intend to kill your grandmother, but she's unfortunately collateral damage.
1: Somehow, I'm not surprised. But Frank goes on to talk about something else. Is another word that the U.S. government uses for the scenario in which silos that are close together are targeted by multiple warheads.
0: You had to time the, the, the two explosions so the war, first explosion wouldn't destroy the other warhead. For that, they called they use the term fratricide. That, that one warhead destroying another was fratricide, and then a warhead destroying people was collateral gamut.
1: Maybe that's why no one in the Air Force told my people about these risks. But wasn't it their responsibility to explain and justify their choices in terms of what weapons we need for our national security? And how these choices affect those who need to live with these weapons?
0: It is a terrible subject, and and uh, yeah, we're lucky that so far, you know, we have survived this My grandfather was involved in the Manhattan Project, would would have been surprised as well. So I hope uh, we can surprise them again by getting rid of these things. Yeah.
1: Maybe there's something the tribe could do about the silos on its land.
2: So theoretically, could we get rid of the 15 silos that are on the reservation? In terms of Can you just remove those 15? I think depends on uh, where they are, how they're wired into the system, and um, the devil's in the detail. That's Leonore again. As I mentioned earlier,
1: she previously served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear and Missile Defense Policy in the Biden administration. I had also asked her if getting rid of the 15 silos on the reservation would make the U.S. less secure.
2: So, again, you have to look at the total amount of uh, silos. There's 400 total silos in terms of silos that are on alert. Um, The total amount is 450 silos. Um, And so when you look at those 15, of course, you're looking at 15 out of 400 and 450. So, of course, that means you're not losing that leg of the triad. So it's a relatively small number. But there was something else that had bothered me. The Air Force's plans
1: to maintain the silos until the 2070s. We had advanced so much technologically in the past 50 years, from the floppy disk to the internet to the smartphone. Would the silos
2: still hold up? I think, you know, in in my thinking about nuclear deterrence, um, I don't think we should be reinvesting in fixed ICBMs. Um, They're not survivable systems. Leonor means that our nuclear architecture is pretty old. I think when you're looking at this and, you know, you think these are going to last into the 2070s, at that point, we're going to have a hundred year old nuclear architecture, right? We're reinvesting and making sort of incrementally yeah, our modernizing, but it's incremental change on an architecture that we decided to deploy in the 1960s. And does that really make sense in terms of keeping nuclear forces into the 2060s, 2070s? Um, where technology has evolved. And so we need to, I think, be looking at new concepts for deterrence um, and be a lot more focused on how do you introduce stability in nuclear deterrence. Um, And for me, that means um, prioritizing resilience and survivability.
1: If anyone could advise the U.S. on resilience and survivability, it would be us, the MHA nation. And I have a feeling that keeping the ICBM silos operating across our land may not be a part of our preferred strategy. In the next and final episode, I will go back to the Res and report what I found to my family and members of the tribe. We sit down and discuss... What happens now? This show was reported by me, Ella Weber. Produced by Sebastian Philippe and Talika Bose. Script editing by Talika Bose. Post-production design and mixing by Jeff Delvisio. Thanks to special advisor Rio Morimoto and Jessica Lambert. Music by Epidemic Sound. I'm Ella Weber, and this was The Missiles on a Res, a special podcast collaboration from Scientific American, Princeton University's Program on Science and Global Security, Nuclear Princeton, and Columbia Journalism School.